John chapter 10, the verses 1 to 21, unpacking together uh, one of the most familiar images of Jesus and his identity. It's the image of the good shepherd. Chances are uh, a lot of you probably probably had some sort of image of Jesus as good shepherd hung on your wall as a kid, you know, maybe as a cuddly, precious moment style shepherd boy holding soft, cuddly lambs in his arms. That is not the image of the good shepherd we're going to unpack together this morning, but chances are you're at least somewhat familiar with it. One of our jobs this morning is going to be to kind of cut through the things we think we know about this passage and get to the heart of what's really here. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do when you come to a familiar one. Uh, but that's what we're going to try to do. We want to understand why Jesus described himself in this way. Now, now here's the thing I've got to mention before we get into the passage. This passage comes in the middle of a conversation that stretches back into chapter 9, which, which Bill unpacked for us last week. And it's a, it's a passage where Jesus is sort of doing battle argument, in a deep argument with the religious leaders of that time, a group called the Pharisees. And he's trying to help people understand that the Pharisees don't stand for good, faithful, God-honoring leadership. Just the, just the opposite. The Pharisees were, were using the people of Israel that they were supposed to be leading. They were using them to establish themselves, to get themselves more respect or more money or a better life. They were what Jesus is going to call thieves, thieves and robbers, who exploited the people they were meant to be guiding. Jesus is not like them. That's what, he's, that's what he's trying to do here in the longer argument. He's trying to recast for them what holy, faithful, God-ordained leadership looks like. He describes it in the first six verses, which we're going to read here in a moment, using images of, of, of a shepherd and sheep and a sheepfold. And the difference between a stranger who the sheep won't hear and respond to and, and a shepherd who the gatekeeper knows. The gatekeeper has, has a relationship with this man. He, he has put him here. He has endorsed. He allows him to come and go and lead the sheep because he is for them and not using them. The first six verses are a kind of word picture for what's been going on in chapter 9. Where we're really going to focus this morning is on how Jesus distinguishes himself from the folks he was talking to in chapter 9, from the folks who would kick a man out of the synagogue because he worshipped the man who gave him sight. Jesus, Jesus gives us a picture of himself that's meant to convince us he's worth trusting, that he can deliver in a way that others can't. And we want to understand the gist of that passage. So I'm going to read the first six verses, which set the stage, and then for most of our time we're going to dig into verses 7 to 21 where Jesus points us to his offer of a good life, the good life, a life of full, that's full and abundant, and tries to convince us that he can deliver it because he is the good shepherd. We want to unpack these images together in, in the moments to come, but first I want to, I want to read the passage for us. I'm going to read verses 1 to 21, and I'm going to ask you, if you would, please stand with me while I read. Just a way of demonstrating with our bodies that we respect and honor the word of God to us that we're going to unpack together this morning. This is the word of the Lord from John chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Here he's talking about the Pharisees from chapter 9. They didn't come through God's ordination. They jumped in to steal the sheep, not guide them. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. 
this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down in my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon, and he's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning by looking at our invitation. The invitation of verses 7 to 10. That's where Jesus is saying, if you come through me, here's what I'll give you. And I want to, I want to sort of summarize that invitation as basically the good life. What Jesus calls life of abundance. The abundant, full life. That's what Jesus says he can deliver to all who come through him. In verses 7 to 10, I don't know if you noticed it, but Jesus is kind of shifting his image a little bit. He was talking about himself as the shepherd in verses 1 to 6. Then he comes back in verse 11 to talk about himself as the shepherd again. But in verses 7 to 10, where he's making this offer of the good life, he talks about himself not as the shepherd, but as the door of the sheep. He shifts it for a minute. What he means is, you've got to come through me if you want to know the good life. If you want to go, if you want to be saved from the things that threaten you, if you want to go in and out and find pasture, the image of a, of a sheep who doesn't have to worry about whether they're going to have what they need. They just kind of roll with it because they trust that their shepherd is giving them what they need. If you want to have that life where you're safe from what threatens you and where you're satisfied by all good things, if you want the abundant life, I'm the door. You've got to come through me. That's the gist of what Jesus is saying in verses 7 to 10. He came to give life, not just a life in which you get by, but an abundant life that is full and joyful and satisfied. And this is the life that all of us want, isn't it? Isn't that a great way to summarize kind of what we're looking for in life? We want to be safe. We want to be secure, to not have to worry. And we want to be satisfied. We want to enjoy life. We may define it differently, but we're all after safety and satisfaction. 
none of us would prefer a life defined by fear or by want. The only question is not whether we want the life Jesus is offering here, but where we'll get it, where we'll look for it. That's the only question. It's the search for this good life, this abundant life of security and satisfaction. It's that search that drives our choice of jobs. It drives our urgency in relationships. It drives our five-year plans for what we're going to own, what we're going to achieve in the next five years. And the sobering thing about what Jesus is saying, the sobering thing, is that his words of promise, a promise that through him, through the door, you can have abundant life. His words of promise are couched in among words of warning. Because what he says is that everybody that came before me, and I think what he would say to us looking ahead 2,000 years later, that everyone else who's come since me, everywhere else you might look for this good life, you're going to be looking to thieves and robbers. You're going to be looking to those who may claim to provide the good life, but who really just want to exploit their sheep. You're going to be looking to something that won't be really concerned about you, that will see you as a means to an end. And if you put your trust, if you try to go through an offer of the good life made by a thief or a robber, they will bleed you dry. Now, in in this context, in John chapter 10, it's clear that Jesus is talking about the religious leaders of Israel. That they were the thieves and the robbers who claimed to be ruling Israel on a good path, to be guiding them towards this good life that God has promised. That if you follow us, it'll be the key to bringing in this kingdom that the prophets talked about. Come through us to the good life. And they only cared about themselves. I mean, Jesus is just had this conversation with them about a man he healed from blindness, who the Pharisees, resp- the Pharisees responded to this blind man being healed by kicking him out of the synagogue because they didn't care about this man and the fact that he could see now. They cared about their position. And this guy is now worshiping Jesus. So he's a threat. So they get rid of him. He's talking about these religious leaders. But, but I think what Jesus says here, his warning and his invitation, these are timeless And they connect with us just as surely here in our time and place as they connected with those who had to be careful about the Pharisees. He says to all who came before him, and he says to all of us who have ever come after him, that every previous offer of a good life and every offer of a good life since them, other than Jesus, is made to you by a thief or a robber. And there there certainly remain thieves and robbers among religious leaders today. Christian and otherwise, if I thought more of you were susceptible to them, we would make a bigger deal about it, right? There are, there are folks out there who would like your money, and they're going to offer you divine blessing in response to you giving them your money. And, and everywhere you hear someone promise the good life comes from your contributions to their ministry, you must run because they are liars, But my sense is we're probably not as susceptible to religious leaders who would try to rip us off as we are to others who, in more subtle ways, offer us the good life but cannot deliver it. 
I mean, honestly, we're bombarded every day. Every day and everywhere we look, we are bombarded by invitations to the good life by people who claim that they and their products are the key. Now, let me just give you one major example. It plays a huge role in our culture now uh, that it hasn't played in previous cultures, so it's worth talking about it. Let's talk about the advertising industry. It drives a huge portion of what happens in our culture, right? Advertising is why your email's free. Advertising is why you don't have to pay for some of your favorite apps. Advertising is why a mediocre NFL franchise out in the middle of nowhere is about to sell for more than a billion dollars. Advertising is what drives even the sort of art form of television, right? Now advertisers know that we've got DVRs. We fast forward the commercials, so they started building products into the storylines of major shows, right? You build a whole product, or build a whole show around like pitching a product or having a key character drive a certain kind of car or wear a certain kind of shoes. And the best advertising, it's everywhere, right? But the best advertising, the best advertising, the most effective ads aren't just selling a product. The best ones are selling a kind of life. This week I watched this Frontlines documentary. You guys know Frontlines? It's a PBS documentary series that runs every year. This, the one, this one was from about 10 years ago. Often they're really good. Uh, this one was, was called The Persuaders. It's from about 10 years ago. And it's about the ad industry and, and how, they've, how they've adjusted their tactics to keep up with how people are trying to get around commercials, right? Uh, they, uh, they contra- it was really fascinating. What they did was they contrasted early ads from like the 40s, 50s, 60s, some of the early television stuff. In those days, the key to good advertising was to compare your product to somebody else's and explain why it's better. They said ER words were all over early ads. Brighter, cleaner, more powerful. It's, it's, it's comparing to the old things and saying, this new thing is better than you can imagine. Something switched, though. In the 1990s is when they, made the, the, when they, when they pinpointed a switch. In the 1990s, the focus became not so much on what the product does and why it's better than another product that tries to do the same thing. Consumers had gotten smart to the fact that pretty much all laundry detergents work the same, that all bleaches get your clothes white, that butter is butter and whatever else. The ER words don't work as well anymore. People got wise to that. So in the, in the 90s, advertising switched from proving that a product was better to describing that product in light of what it means, not what it does. What it means, not what it does. Now here's, according to one expert that's interviewed on the program, super brands like Nike or Starbucks or The Body Shop engaged in what this expert called pseudo-spiritual marketing. Marketing a way of being. Think of the bow nose ads in the 80s. It wasn't about the quality of Nike's shoulder pads or the, the fact that you could run faster if you used their cleats. It was pulling on an image of a guy who was a total stud, greatest athlete in the history of American sports. Think of the, uh, think of the Be Like Mike campaign, the breakthrough campaign. Well, again, it wasn't about you can jump as high as he does if you wear his shoes because they're better than the Reebok pumps. It was about you want to be like Mike? Wear what Mike wears. You can have an identity that's like his. Think about the I Am Tiger Woods campaign in the 90s. Again, not about a golf club. Nike barely made golf clubs by that point. It was about 
buying things that would make you seem like Tiger Woods. It's what, they, it's what the, the program calls emotional branding. Here's how they summarize the goal of emotional branding. Emotional as opposed to rational, by the way. What they meant was not branding that appeals to your head with a list of arguments for why this is better, but emotional in, in the sense that it appeals to something you want to be, to something you feel about yourself or long for, instead of something you're thinking towards. Here's the goal of it, according to the program. The goal is to fill the empty places where non-commercial institutions like schools or churches might have once done the job. Brands become more than a mark of quality, not just about getting good butter. They become an invitation to a longed-for lifestyle, a ready-made identity. Think about the Mac versus PC ads from about 10 years ago. Those were genius. Do you remember those? You had the PC guy in the sort of short-sleeved dress shirt with a bad tie, colors that didn't really work, some outdated glasses. But, you know, he fits the dress code of the big corporate cube farm that's hired him. So, so he, he technically meets the minimum requirement. He, he, he gets it done, I guess. And then you have the Mac guy who wears the dark hoodie with the white strings because he's just competent. He doesn't have to project competence by the way that he dresses. He just is. It's a way of being. You don't have any specs given in those commercials, right? You don't even have a, this one gets spyware, this one doesn't argument, which could easily win the argument for Mac every time back, the, back in those days. You don't even have that. What you have is two ways of being. Who do you want to be? Even Bluebell Ice Cream markets itself this way. Now, if there's ever a company that could win an ER word competition, right? Better, creamier, tastier. It's Bluebell ice cream. But have you seen their ads? They're not, they're not nearly as sophisticated as the Mac versus PC ads. But they're kind of like an Instagram filter-ish video of some old farm somewhere and a big front porch with people sitting on it and kids and puppies running through the wheat fields and this really cheesy music over it talking about wondering how you can get so many good things in a carton this size or something like that. They're appealing to a way of life, though. Like, this is the way it used to be when it was good, back when it was good. You want to get there? Eat homemade vanilla ice cream brought to you by Bluebell. Now, I don't mean to suggest that advertising is always a sinister business. It is, it's not. It's a persuasion business. Nothing wrong with persuading people. There is a fine line often between persuasion and manipulation. But either way, what we ought to pay attention to, what we owe it to ourselves to pay attention to here, is what's really going on. Every time we look at a billboard, every time we watch a commercial, every time we even watch a TV show, when you think you're skipping the ads, every time what we're being offered is a door into the good life. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Who do you think you are to those who sell these products, who make these offers to those who want you? Who are you to them? Sinister or not, to them, you are not a name. You're not a face. You're not a person with a family history, with a set of dreams and goals and objectives. You're not a person who knows sorrow and joy. To them, you are your wallet. What they want is not you, but your money. And they want your money to be theirs. Your experience of a good life is not their priority. 
It's not really their fault. I'm not dogging on them. I just want you to know, people who are claiming they can offer you a good life don't know or care about you. You are a commodity. And in the worst cases, Jesus' description of these offers of a good life as thieves and robbers are pretty much spot on. Think of the mortgage crisis. Think of the vision of a good life that was sold to so many people who couldn't afford the homes they were put into. Thieves and robbers. Jesus claims that he is not a thief or a robber, but the key, the gateway to life and plenty for all who enter. He claims that the sheep who come through him are not numbers in a spreadsheet, but individuals that he cares about and knows how to protect. That's the claim of verses 7 to 10. You come here, you'll be saved. And you'll go in and out and have everything you need. You'll have good pasture. But you've got to come through me. And what every one of you owes it to yourself to ask this morning, what every reader who has ever heard Jesus make these claims must ask is why should I trust that Jesus can provide for me what no one else before or since could provide? How can I trust that he can give me the good life? That's the case Jesus makes for us in verses 11 to 18 when he switches back from himself as the door, the pathway, the entrance to the good life into the provider of a good life as the good shepherd who knows how to take care of his sheep, who knows how to give them what he wants. And his case for himself as good shepherd boils down to two pieces. He can, pers- he can deliver where no one else can because he loves his sheep with a love that took him to the grave and he cares for his sheep with a power that the grave could not conquer. Those two things about his portrait of himself in verses, in verses 11 to 18. His love that is so great, it took him to death for his sheep. His power that is so great that even death could not keep him from protecting them. I wanna, we don't have much time. We're going to have to do this quick. But I want to point you to these details in verses 11 to 18. First, Jesus can be trusted because he loves his people enough to die for them. He says this in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he ups the ante throughout the rest of the passage. Four different times he says, not only do I die for the sheep, I came here to die for the sheep. That was the point. It wasn't something I was willing to do. It's not like I came and said, I'm going to give my all, even if that takes my life. No, no, I came because I knew they needed me to die. So that's what I came to do. That's Jesus' claim. That's the main point of the illustration in in, in this contrast between a good shepherd and a merely hired hand. A merely hired hand is one who might do the job he was asked to do so long as the money is good, but any time the equation shifts and he he might actually lose something rather than gain something from his care for the sheep. Anytime a wolf comes into the equation, a wolf who might eat him, well, then the money he was getting to care for the sheep That's going to lose out every time to the quality of life he wants to live. So he runs. He runs. He didn't sign up for death. He signed up for a ticket to more money. I used this analogy before. We we looked at this passage back back at Easter. And so forgive me if you guys remember what I talked about on Easter Sunday, but uh, I got to use it again because I think it works. I basically was this guy 
this hireling back in college. I had a rent-a-cop job where I got paid to do my homework. For seven bucks an hour, I'd sit in a, in a, in a really fake-looking cop uniform behind a desk, behind a locked door, and just kind of check people in and out as they would go in the late evening hours. $7 an hour was enough to buy my body in a desk chair and maybe a spin around the office floor once an hour just to do my rounds. But it wasn't worth more than that. It, did, it, didn't, it didn't buy any more of me than that. And what I had been told was that if anyone comes up that's going to cause you any problem at all, if you even think that there's any danger, then what you're supposed to do is run. And if in the midst of your running or after the conclusion of your running, you have time to call the police, then you could do that too, but mainly you run. <laughs> now, if someone broke, to my, broke into my home, if someone came after my wife or my helpless boys, well, in that case, you know, I don't have much to offer. Look at me. But I'm going to fight with every ounce of strength that I have until my dying breath to keep them safe. Whatever I've got is theirs. Because I know them. I know what they're like. Their personalities give me joy. I know my boys have no hope if I don't stand for them. I know them and love them and they know me. And in that sense, in that moment, they would be more important to me than my life. A life without them would be a life I didn't want to live, given that choice. And that's the kind of shepherd Jesus is. He lays down his life for the sheep because he knows his sheep, and they know him. He knows them inside and out. He knows all their fears. He knows all their beautiful marks, all their flaws. He knows their helplessness, and it draws him to them. He owns them. They are on him, and he gets that. He isn't a hired hand, and so he won't run. The passage I've mentioned earlier repeats Jesus' resolve to lay down his life four different times. It's the clear emphasis of this text. Jesus came to die. And in that sense, even a Palestinian shepherd, a rough-and-tumble fighter, like those Palestinian shepherds would have been, even that guy is not a good analogy for who Jesus is. Because when a Palestinian shepherd died for his sheep, it was an accident. He didn't mean to die for them. He might have been willing to, but he didn't want to. But Jesus came to die on purpose. That's the extent of his love. You can trust him because he loves you with his being. But so far, we haven't said enough. You know what it means for the sheep when the shepherd dies, don't you? It means they die. When the shepherd gets eaten by a wolf, the sheep then get eaten by the wolf. So if all Jesus did was die for us, if he died a martyr's death, like Gandhi or Martin Luther King, then we are just as exposed now as we ever were. And he can't deliver on it. If he's dead today... He can't deliver on his promise to be the door into a good life where he makes us safe and makes us satisfied forever. No, if, if Jesus is going to be the shepherd he's claiming to be, he's got to be alive. And that's precisely what he says he came to do. He came to die, but then he also says in verses 17 and 18, 
that he came to take his life back up again. It was the whole point that he would die and then rise again. He has that authority. He is that kind of guy that he can, he can be raised from life on purpose. Who is this guy? You can understand why they're reaching for the stones at the end of this conversation. You know what he's claiming, that he is the God who spoke life into being. That's the only way he could have authority to, to come and give up his life in order that, for the purpose of taking his life back again. That's precisely what he says in verses 17 and 18. I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. The beauty of this is that he has a power that even death could not overcome. He dies with absolute control, with complete authority. He is certain of the end and of his ability to accomplish his end. He died so that he could rise again. And if we are going to know a life in which we are saved from our greatest enemy, even death itself, in which we know plenty, come and go without fear or worry. If we're going to know that kind of life, what we need is a shepherd for whom death is no threat. And that, that is what Jesus claims of himself. He is a good shepherd who came to die and to rise again. What can separate us from the love of a shepherd who would die for us, marked with power that even death couldn't conquer? We don't have time to go through the responses that should be ours to this message. I merely want to point you in that case to verses 19 through 21. Because there is a dividing line that runs between those who heard Jesus say these words and it runs among those who have heard these words read for 2,000 years and it runs through this room where you sit right now. And that dividing line is between the sheep who hear his voice and respond to him and those who reject him as insane or demon-possessed or a joke. So what will you do with Jesus? His sheep hear his voice and they follow him. What do you hear? Father, by the power of your spirit, open our ears so that we hear our names called by the good shepherd so that we follow him with hearts that are full and free in devotion to Him. Protect us by Your Spirit from giving our hearts to that which will not make us safe or satisfied. Give us Jesus, we pray, in His name. Amen.